Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Michael Gordon, and I'm proud to serve as the 95th president of the greatest Rotary Club in the world. Our club serves our local and international community through a variety of projects, but our main focus is on youth literacy. If you're ever in town for either business or pleasure, we invite you to join us at one of our weekly lunches. More information about meeting time and location can be found at lasvegasrotary.com. Now, sit back and enjoy this week's speaker. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I should, but I'm not going to. Excuse me, I was ill-prepared. I, wasn't, I hadn't swallowed yet. Um, sometimes we need to be reminded that we live in a desert. We're used to living life as if we were had unlimited water supplies. And there are not limit, unlimited water supplies. However, because of the efficient management of those that manage and oversee this very precious resource for us, we live our comfortable lives in the desert we call home. So I'm happy to introduce our speaker today. John Ensminger is the general manager of Las Vegas Valley Water District and the Southern Nevada Water Authority, and he can tell you more about that challenge. John? Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to spend a little bit of time uh, with you guys today. I'm just going to get right into it and talk really about the major responsibilities of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. The, the Water Authority is the regional... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> um, the Kidder Actors, unfortunately, guys, you have got to go back to school. So, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. So if you guys, thank you for coming and making our annual meeting so great again. And thanks for all the hard work. They say never accept a role opposite children or animals, and now I understand why. Uh, so, <laughs> back to the mundane subject of our water supply. Uh, so, the Southern Nevada Water Authority is the regional wholesaler. We sell water to the city of Henderson, the city of North Las Vegas, the Las Vegas Valley Water District. So, nobody in this room uh, gets a bill from the Water Authority. You get a bill from the people we sell water to, and we have five major responsibilities. The first is water supply planning. We are charged uh, by state law as the agency that has a 50-year water resource plan that we have to renew every single year uh, in order to assure that, that we have a stable long-term supply for our community. Uh, the second 
is conservation. Now, we are not a regulatory agency. We don't tell people uh, how they use water. But what we do is coordinate with all of the local jurisdictions, agree on what the rules of the road are going to be, and then our member agencies uh, put those codes and regulations into the county code, into city code, uh, and into water district service rules so that we have the same conservation rules in Aliante, in Anthem, and in Summerlin. Water quality. We have two uh, world-class uh, water treatment facilities out at Lake Mead uh, that ensure compliance with uh, little things like the Safe Drinking Water Act and make sure our water is safe to drink every day. Lastly, uh, or sec fourth thing, infrastructure. We build a lot of really big things that nobody ever gets to see. We've built about $3.5 billion uh, in infrastructure over the last 20 years. I'll show you a couple pictures of that. And that has been to accommodate uh, not only our new residents, but also uh, the people that already call Southern Nevada home. And then lastly, stewardship. We are uh, responsible for uh, the maintenance of the Las Vegas Wash, the Las Vegas Springs Preserve, the Warm Springs Natural Area. So we take stewardship of our natural resources uh, very, very seriously. So who do we take care of? We serve water to seven out of every 10 people that live in the state of Nevada every single day. Uh, that's 73% of the state's population, 76% of the state's economic output, and we do it all with less than 5% of the water that's available in the state of Nevada. People go down the strip, they think of Las Vegas as a profligate water user, right? We don't use very much of the state's resource in order to uh, take care of in excess of 70% of the population. And speaking of the strip, again, people see those fountains, they assume we're just using a lot of water. We are blessed, and I don't think that's too strong of a word living in the Mojave Desert, with an extremely water efficient base industry. We have 22% of our state's jobs, not Southern Nevada's jobs, the state of Nevada's jobs, uh, in an industry that uses less than one-tenth of one percent of the water supplies available uh, to the state of Nevada. So the next time one of your friends you know, is banging on Nevada or Las Vegas for using a bunch of water, you can tell them we really don't use all that much. And how do we do it? The first thing is indoor use doesn't actually matter. If it hits a drain in Las Vegas, we treat it, we put it back down the Las Vegas wash into Lake Mead, and we can take that same gallon out. So you can run your faucet, your shower head, all day long. You could leave every shower and every hotel room on the Strip 24 hours a day. It wouldn't increase the amount of water we deplete from the lake. There are good reasons to use less water indoors, power consumption, uh, the cost of chemicals to treat the water. But the only way we lose water out of our system is outdoor irrigation and evaporative cooling. So where do we get our water? We get 90% of our water from the Colorado River uh, via Lake Mead and 10% from the native aquifer that underlies the Las Vegas Valley. And we don't get very much out of the seven states and Mexico uh, that share the Colorado River. Nevada has a legal entitlement to 1.8% of the Colorado River. 
Now, if you guys were asking questions in real time, this would be the juncture where I get the question, why don't we renegotiate the compact? The answer to that is to change a compact that's been entered into under the U.S. Constitution, you need the majority vote of seven state legislatures, the signature of seven governors, majorities in the House and the Senate, and the signature of the President. Now, your faith in our democratic institutions might be slightly higher than mine, but I don't think we're going to get six states to vote to all take less so that we can take more. So we need to do it via negotiation. We need to find alternative mechanisms uh, in order to achieve our goals. Now, we all know, if you've been out to the lake any time in the last decade, that Lake Mead is imperiled. You see here, 2000, in the year 2000, the lake was essentially full. You fast forward 17 years, the lake has dropped about 138 feet uh, since the turn of the last century. We obviously, using 1.8%, don't have a lot to do with that. That's largely uh, water users downstream uh, and the fact that the snowpack uh, in the Rocky Mountains has been significantly lower than it was in the 20th century. And we need to be prepared for that to continue. What this graph shows in the vertical axis is the elevations of Lake Mead. So at about 1,200, the lake is full. We sit today uh, about 1085 or so. So if we model out either a continuation of the current drought or the drought that hit the Colorado River Plateau in the 1950s, you see that the lake levels are going to continue to go down. And the most critical elevation on this slide is elevation 1,000. Because as we sit in this room today, if the lake goes below 1,000, we don't have the pumps to physically pump water out of the lake. So this is not our children's problem, our grandchildren's problem. This is our problem today. And I'm going to explain uh, the steps we're taking to address it. This just shows that as early as January 1, 20, uh, 2020, that we could hit the first federally declared uh, shortage level uh, in Lake Mead. So this is what we're doing about it. We're banking a lot of water. I'll tell you all about that. We're planning again resources, 50-year resource plan uh, every year, driving down our use, and above all, we're building some pretty significant infrastructure. So the first step in that infrastructure was in 2008, we began to build the third intake. In 1971, the federal government built intake number one. In the late 90s, intake number two came on. But we knew we needed an intake all the way at the bottom of the lake so that regardless of how far the lake levels decline, we would be guaranteed to have a significant amount of water over our intake. So we finished that in September of 2015. That is a 20-foot diameter tunnel, literally two and a half miles underneath the lake. It was a significant uh, capital undertaking, uh, the cost of $817 million. But today, every gallon of water that's being used in Las Vegas is being pulled from that third intake. So I just want to explain why that's critical. These are just the shortage elevations in federal law 
But the one thing we're blessed with in Nevada is our geographic location upstream of Hoover Dam. Because no matter how low the lake goes, the Bureau of Reclamation can't release any more water out of the dam if it gets down to elevation 895. And that new intake of ours is sitting there at 860. So even in a situation where you can't release water from the dam to Los Angeles, to Phoenix, to the country of Mexico, we're guaranteed to have 35 feet of water over our intake. But the intake isn't the entire solution. If we have any engineers in the room, they will verify for me that pumps push, they don't suck. So today, when those original facilities were brought online, pumps were installed at 1050 and at 1000. That's why if the lake goes to 999, there's no pumps to push the water uphill. So we are building the low lake level pumping station, which in combination with the third intake will give us the ability to pump water under any uh, hydrologic conditions. And it's a significant undertaking. That's our 20,000 pound drill bit that you don't buy at Home Depot. <laughs> That's our 250,000 pounds of rings on top of the drill assembly because what we've had to do is punch six foot diameter holes 500 feet straight down so that we can get below the, the, the dead pool level and install pumps, which in combination will have 32 pumps that can each pump 30 million gallons a day and in combination can produce 900 million gallons a day of water, fully replacing the first two pumping stations. So this is the four bay. This is 500 feet underground. That's the bottom of those 500 foot holes that that drill bit punched through all that volcanic and metamorphic rock out on the shore of Lake Mead. These are our 12-foot aqueducts. You don't buy a 12-foot wide joint at Home Depot either, but we had to move the water from our new pumping station to our existing treatment facilities. Okay, so that's it for infrastructure. On the water conservation side, we are simply put the most successful urban area in the world when it comes to municipal water conservation. We have removed enough grass in this valley. You can take your pick of your graphics. My favorite by far is the fact that we can roll an 18-inch piece of sod 94% of the way around the circumference of the globe. That's how much grass we've taken out of this valley uh, since 2002. And the results of that speak for themselves. Our population has grown 43%, our per capita water usage is down 36%, and our consumptive use off the Colorado River is down 26%. So that has uh, made us extremely secure uh, in our overall water resource portfolio and ensured that we have enough water uh, to continue to grow our economy. Water resources. I told you we've been banking water. So since the mid-90s, we have cooperated with the state of Arizona to inject water into their aquifers. We have cooperated with the state of California, the country of Mexico, all to come up with banked regional supplies. 
So today, we sit with a reserve account of 1.8 million acre-feet of water. You can see that last year, our consumptive use was 243,000 acre-feet of water. So we have in excess of eight years of our current demands banked around the region. There's no other major city in the desert southwest that has anything like this kind of, of water reserves. We've also partnered with agencies throughout the Colorado River Basin to put more water into Lake Mead. And the result of those programs is, without them, today we'd be sitting at elevation 1050. Because we've, each one of these colored bands represents a different program that put more water into the lake. So because of those, we're 34 feet higher than we would have been. So every three feet is enough water to supply Nevada for an entire year. So 34 feet, that's 10 years of our water supply that's been added to the lake. So what this slide tells you, these problems can seem daunting. This drought is real, it's prolonged, but we have the tools to address it. It just takes money and political will. So what we've been working on uh, is a plan with Arizona and California to put additional uh, measures in place that will slow the decline of the lake. This has been in the press a lot recently. Uh, Arizona has managed to get sideways with the four upper division states. But the reason that we need to have a drought contingency plan is, is pretty simple. With either just current risk or with additional uh, shortages from uh, projected climate change, we show out in the next 10 years a 20 to 30% chance of Lake Mead going below 1020, which would be extremely dire conditions for the Colorado River. But if we put these additional uh, contingency plans in place, we push that probability down below 10%. So that is really uh, the onus that is on the basin states right now is to come up with proactive plans to continue uh, to use uh, less water. Okay, so I've told you about our 50-year resource plan a couple of times uh, because the number one question I get, and I'll get it after this no matter what, is, is Las Vegas going to run out of water? And the answer is no, <laughs> and here's why. So this is base case. If we never see a shortage on the river, and if... CBER, the Center for Business and Economic Research at UNLV, if they're correct in their population projections, which are represented by the red line, we have plenty of water through 2068, right? That's our 50-year plan. <clears throat> if we show, if we model a shortage on the river every single year with the current 20,000 acre-foot reduction in federal law, those temporary supplies, that 1.8 million acre-feet in, in reserves, will also see us through 2068 without adding a single gallon to our portfolio. This is our stress test. What we do here is we double the rate of population growth, we double the shortage volume that's currently in federal law to 40,000 acre-feet, and what that shows then is we would need new water supplies in about 20 years. However, if we can 
ramp up our conservation, if we can improve even upon the success story that, that we've had so far with conservation and save eight more gallons per person per day by 2035 and nine more gallons per person per day by 2055, even under that worst case hydrologic condition, you push the need for future resources out into the mid-2040s. So we do control our own fate. It's just a matter of whether or not we have the, the will and the desire to use water more and more efficiently in the desert. So that does it for us. Always want to remind people to absolutely keep conserving. You can learn all about this and get more information at snwa.com. And with that, I'll be happy to answer any questions. How do you get back your uh, bank to water? Do you just take more of what comes out of the Colorado as a credit against California, or what? Uh, it, it's different bank by bank. So in Arizona, we've physically injected the water into their aquifers. So when we call that water back, they turn on their pumps, they take that water out of the aquifer, they order less from Hoover Dam, and we take their Colorado River water out as an exchange. In California, they haven't physically banked it, so they actually have to reduce their usage and, again, let us take it out of the bank. But we have about 300,000 acre feet that we physically injected into the Las Vegas Valley. So for that, we just turn on our wells and take it out. So it's slightly different uh, for each, each component within the overall bank. Yeah, I, I, the question, uh, uh, well, just one, one comment is that uh, we just got back from Egypt, and those were only a few like our own. They're having a big uh, controversy there because Ethiopia wants to build a dam on the Nile, and that means that all the, uh, the downstream countries, Sudan and Egypt, are restricted from that. So that's me under negotiation. My question was, what's going on with the, uh, the attempts that are going on for years to draw that water from northern Nevada and the aquifers down there down here for our use, for future use, or, or daily use, for that matter. Right. Well, that, that project is in our future resources portfolio. Uh, but as you can see, we obviously aren't going to need the water for at least 20 years. So it's not a project that we're going to move forward with unless and until it's absolutely necessary. And, and it's also just one of our options because uh, with the particularly with the deals we've done with the country of Mexico uh, since 2012, we, we've established the legal mechanisms whereby we could build a coastal desal facility, probably at Rosarita Beach, because there's existing power facilities there, uh, and do an exchange of uh, water under the Mexican 1944 treaties. So all of those, that's why we do a resource plan every year for the next 50 years. So when we're 10 years out from needing more water, we'll be able to activate one or more of those options. So uh, thank you for the interesting information. Uh, I imagine the recycling is energy intensive. Uh, do, do we have enough of it to uh, increase the, uh, the amount of water we can recycle? And what, what are the cost impacts of using energy to, to clean the water and recycle it? So I'm, I'm sorry, do you mean do we have enough energy? Well, uh, it, it's got to cost something, right? Uh, I don't know where that energy is coming from. Is right. It, yeah. 
we, we manage our own energy portfolio. We own our own transmission. We have a loop uh, 230 kV system that, that goes all the way around uh, the valley. So we run our, our own uh, book of energy. Uh, we, we have a lot of solar. We're about 19% renewable uh, right now. So we have a lot of on-site, uh, particularly photovoltaic. Uh, and then we mostly hedge out you know, to three to five year uh, natural gas facilities. And solar are those the two natural gas and solar the two components? those are the two biggest components of our of our energy portfolio yeah a question uh, could we stop worrying about this if we've cut down on illegal immigration <laughs> that's uh well outside my jurisdiction um, yeah, I was impressed with the banking situation as you described it but uh, we have been around Nevada long enough, many of us, know that banks can go broke. And uh, how assured are we that these banks would have to meet their commitment to give us back water and we'd have no problem getting it back? So the, the question is really how certain are we that we can get the banked water back? Um, I'll give you a couple of different answers. The first, the most tortured water saying in the known universe is whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting, right? But that's not my favorite. My favorite is it's better to be upstream with a shovel than downstream with water right. And we got a really big shovel. So when the day comes we got to take our water out of the lake, we're going to take it out of the lake. Now I'll give you the legal answer. The legal answer is we have binding contracts with both Arizona and California. The Secretary of Interior uh, serves as the guarantor or the surety uh, under those contracts. So we are 100% confident when the day comes we have to pull that water, uh, we're going to have the legal ability to do so. So I'm, I'm curious. I heard that Lake Powell had actually filled up, and so is there, uh, is there an option to release more from upstream into Lake Mead? Um, so, and this has been controversial of late, and I'll explain why a little bit. First, Lake Powell is in the process of falling 60 feet this year because we've had an extremely dry year in the Colorado River Basin. It's tracking to be the fifth or sixth driest year in recorded history. About 43% of normal inflow is gonna go into Powell. So the way Powell and Mead operate together, sometimes one can get a little bit higher for a year or two, but over a three to five year window, the goal is to equalize the, the contents of both reservoirs. And that's actually what's, so while Lake Powell is falling 60 feet, uh, Arizona decided it would be a good time to fiddle with their water order so that they changed the elevation of Lake Mead and got Lake Powell to release another 700,000 acre feet of water, which elicited a very nasty letter from four governors uh, upstream. So overall, they should be equal over the intermediate uh, period, but they're always designed to, to work in tandem. Would you say that again, please, about we can do all the showers we want, et cetera, et cetera, and then I have a... <laughs> Okay. So indoor, it's a, it's a closed loop. If you, if you run, turn on your faucet, turn on your shower, run it all day long. If it goes down the drain, it winds up in a treatment plant, it gets cleaned, discharged down the Las Vegas wash, 
into Lake Mead where we can take that exact same water out again. The only way we actually lose water out of our system is when you turn on your sprinklers or when you run your evaporative coolers. Okay, so the other question is, so what happens when the lake keeps going down and we know that California is getting the most of the water, correct? And, and a, the stuff that goes towards agriculture, approximately 70, 80% of that is used for alfalfa, which is not for human consumption, but for cattle consumption. How does that all fit in? And <coughs> like they can just take whatever they want because the more they take, even though you say we were allocated so much, eventually if they're taking all that, we don't have much to take even though we're allocated to do that. Well, that's why it's key that we're going to be able to access water even if they draw it down that far because they do have the, the senior priority rights. Some of what I talked about briefly with the drought contingency plan, though, the reason you lower those probabilities of the lake going lower from 30% to less than 10% is because under that deal, California would, for the first time, agree to take less. So they're seeing that risk, too. Right? I mean, there's professional water planners in California, and people in the Imperial Valley and Coachella Valley realize that if Hoover Dam can't release water, you know, that whole area of the economy is going to be devastated. I mean, the greater Los Angeles area from Burbank to San Diego is about 50% reliant upon the Colorado River. So they, even though they have awfully good legal rights, they're, they're seeing that they need to start taking proactive measures to protect the lake as well. Thank you. She's coming with the mic. I saw on the news this morning that California legislature is going to mandate solar panels for all new housing and existing housing. I don't know if that'll pass or not, but will that take some of the pressure off from California for water? Um, I, I guess possibly a little bit. California doesn't have a lot of uh, wet-cooled power generation, and the stuff that they do have, like down by Huntington Beach, I mean, they're using ocean water for, for cooling on that. So I, I don't think, you know, water consumption for uh, power cooling is going to move the needle. I mean, th this gentleman's right. 80% of California and Arizona's water consumption is agriculture, and the rest is largely municipal. What's the story of Mount Charleston? Uh, I have a home up there, and uh, I pay, in the summertime, onwards of $300 a month. And uh, I don't really water a lot, but everything up there is so dry that uh, I'm losing. I lost 14 huge trees this last time. The drought is just unbelievable. Right. Well, for, for good or bad, the story of Mount Charleston is... You have very few people by which to divide the operation of a pretty expensive water system. I mean, that's all operated on wells. Uh, you, you have the same, you know, sort of expenses that we have uh, in terms of being able to repair pipelines. And when there's a, a break in a pipeline, you got to roll a truck from the valley and, and go up there and fix it. And you got all the expenses down here divided by 2 million customers and all the expenses up there divided by 200 customers, it's, it's numerator denominator. That, that's all I can tell you. But you only have like three wells that are... There's, there's not the a lot drought, of water, there's not the a lot of water really, on Mount Charleston. It's, it's been a, really tough. 
Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging system. We, we run a lot of rural systems, and that's by far, in a way, our most challenging. Hi, a week ago Wednesday when it was raining, and Wednesday is the day that I get to water, so I have electrics, I have regular sprinklers. I noticed the water police was on my street. What were they doing? <laughs> And that was during the day when most people would be at work and didn't know to turn their sprinklers off? Well, they, they may well have just been reading meters. Because no, the, he had his little woo-woo-woo-woo right, going on. And that because they drive slowly. So we have uh, automated meter readers, right? So they, okay. we don't have a guy, guy or gal that goes door-to-door -door anymore and looks at the meter like it was 20 years ago. But we also don't have a system that reports all the way back to a central location. So we have to roll trucks down the street, and they pick up the signal from each meter and know how much water is being consumed. And they serve dual purpose. They read the meters, and they also enforce those uh, water watering restrictions and day of week and, and things like that. So if, you're, if it was Wednesday and you were allowed to be watering, they were probably reading meters. Okay. <laughs> I'll look at my bill when it comes in. Thank you, John. Thanks for coming to speak to our meeting. As a thank you, we would like to present you with our Share What You Can Award, where we will present a hot meal with water to a homeless veteran in your name. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. And John has agreed to stay, stick around for a couple of minutes if you have any more questions. And let me end today by congratulating every one of you again for reaching our $2 million goal. And if you wondered if what our club does make a difference, hopefully by seeing our president, Kate and Cheeks of our Kidderack Club and all the Kidderack kids, we are truly teaching youth to succeed through literacy, education, and life skills development. Now go forth and make a difference. Thank you for joining us for another wonderful meeting of the Rotary Club of Las Vegas. If you're interested in membership or want to know more about our upcoming projects and speakers, please visit lasvegasrotary.com for more information. Now go forth and make a difference.